Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey everyone, I'm Ryan Heath, author of the Brussels Playbook column and welcoming you back to another episode of EU Confidential. If you're listening here in Europe, this could be the last episode before you head off for your summer holidays, so we've got a very special transport treat for you this week. We speak to the Commissioner for Transport from the EU, Violetta Bultz. The experience has showed that if you engage maximum amount of people in the process of innovation, you get the best results out. You get the most sustainable, stable solutions that can really address in a systemic way the challenge in front. And we get you in the mood for your journey by talking to Josh Persana. And we're talking how the UK and France are working to ban petrol and diesel cars. We look at a really quite incredible set of allegations about a series of car cartels and collusion in Germany amongst all of the biggest car makers there. It really almost puts that Dieselgate scandal in the shade compared to what we've been hearing over the last few days. And the the consequences of this scandal could go far, far, far wider than the Dieselgate scandal because this includes not only emissions-related stuff but potentially specifications for all manner of technical features in cars. And Bultz herself, she really gets into it. She could be the most interesting European commissioner out there. And we talk to her about everything from drones and other futuristic technologies to why she has a different approach to her portfolio compared to a lot of European commissioners. Then, moving into the fun parts of the podcast, we talk about a male-only list of promotions in our EU WTF section and how the Commission thinks that it can issue that list of promotions the very same day that it comes up with a new diversity strategy. And in our Dear Politico advice session, we talk to yet another parliamentary assistant, who's worried about having their reputation ruined for life because their MEP is under investigation for misuse of funds and they're worried that their name is always going to appear in Google searches related to some kind of EU scandal. So we offer advice there in that section with our Brussels Brains Trust of Lena Abarus and Alva Finn. Well, joining me now on the podcast is Josh Pasana. Politico's transport rider here in Brussels, and we are going to geek out a little bit on all the ways that you can move yourself around this continent. Because starting off, it's been a big week for the car industry, hasn't it, Josh? 
That it has, uh, and not a great week for diesel fuel either, or if you like diesel fuel cars. Or petrol even. Or petrol. So we might start off by talking about the ban that the UK government has just announced, hot on the heels of a ban that the French government had announced a few weeks back, and Norway's also announced a ban, and they want to ban petrol and diesel cars, all of them, by 2040. What's your hot take on that, Josh? Well, first of all, 23 years is a long time off. So it's quite interesting that these announcements have been made by the French government and the British government. But one has to really think about these kind of policy developments in the context of a period of time that is going to see many more governments come and go before they come in. You mean Theresa May won't be the Prime Minister in 2040? Well, you never know, of course, Ryan, you never know. But as it looks now, she might not be the Prime Minister in two weeks, let alone in 23 <laughs> years. So. So, so it's a bit of a safe bet to go out and put your green credentials on the table by yeah. banning these cars. Because and also, you don't have to live with the consequences, do you? Precisely. And right now as well, so many EU countries are under fire for having very poor air quality. We're, we're talking right now in Brussels. This is one of the worst Defenders in the EU for having terrible air quality due to car pollution in Brussels. So it's a really good time for a government under fire, generally, to really stake out a few vote-winning policies, if you like. And but, obviously, but what are those governments or the EU doing right now to clean up this diesel mess? Well, there, there's some infringement cases going ahead right now against certain EU countries over their air quality. Specifically, countries need to set forward a plan for cleaning up their air. So it's not necessarily forcing them to do something drastic today, but the EU and national governments need to set forward a pathway for cleaning up airspace. So it's kind of how they're going to get diesel cars off the road or how they're going to make airspace less smoggy. Uh, clearly, the most dramatic way of doing that is just to ban cars entirely. And that's essentially what these governments in London and Paris have decided to do in 23 years from now. The Norwegians, incidentally, are going for 2025, so it's a bit more ambitious. Well, now we're talking because, I mean, it really strikes me that not only was there deception from within the in industry, but effectively some governments were almost colluding with their industries to allow this to happen. They were, I mean, to give the backstory, uh, there's been a lot of pressure on carbon emissions, for example. Diesel cars don't have very high carbon emissions, but they have very other noxious forms of emissions. So in this rush to try and do nice things for the climate, we've actually been polluting our own lungs more than we needed to, is, is the upshot of all this, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, the last two years have seen relentless media coverage, including in our own pages on the, the Dieselgate scandal. And that's escalated again over, over recent days with allegations that German car makers, five of the biggest, have been colluding essentially on not just systems that manage the exhaust and the fumes and the pollution from vehicles, but on everything from... Uh, the size of tanks to fill up with some liquid that reduces the nitrogen oxide emissions to sunroof specifications. And what this indicates is, as you say, is long-term collusion between the automotive industry and parts of Europe with national authorities, essentially to protect their interests and to, if you like, rig the, the rules of the game so that car companies remain profitable. And, you know, one has to remember in the UK and in Germany, these are major areas of the national economy. The Dieselgate scandal really erupted in, in 2015 with allegations that Volkswagen had to eventually admit that they'd installed these so-called so defeat devices in 11 million vehicles. But I think officials there are quite aggrieved that they aren't the only people to have done this kind of stuff. And Volkswagen's got a very bad reputation over recent years. So now they want to take everyone else down with them. Well, also the possible rewards for being the first to own up to this kind of collusion are lucrative. So, of course, the first person to, to admit to wrongdoing in this case will essentially be exempt from any fines. 
And the consequences of this scandal could go far, far, far wider than the Dieselgate scandal because this includes not only emissions-related stuff but potentially specifications for all manner of technical features in cars. We're talking about billions upon billions upon billions in fines if, we must say if, this cartel allegation generates a full investigation and that has an outcome that goes against the car companies. And the sort of scale and the multiple angles of all of this that is really forcing the commission to do a big rethink about how it approaches the whole industry. One of the issues that I raised with Violetta Bultz, the transport commissioner, in the interview coming up next is how the commission feels it needs to tackle this issue holistically. And so, you know, it's interesting. They've actually now got basically a vice president for the car industry. They've appointed Yiki Katainen, the Finnish commissioner, to actually oversee coordination of all of the different angles of trying to sort out this industry. Because let's not forget, in the US, consumers are being offered quite decent compensation for what they suffered in this Dieselgate scandal. And European consumers who had the exact same experience as those in the US are essentially being offered nothing. And the message has been very, very strong from the European Commission over recent months. The Commission have decided to ratchet this up to a new level. Absolutely. And then, of course, what all of that highlights is that even someone whose title is Transport Commissioner, like Violetta Bultz, can often find themselves, if not sidelined, then at least not a part of some of the big transport debates. And I guess that's because transport affects everything, but also it's not really seen as one of the core portfolios of the EU's power. So one of the things that Waltz is going to talk to us about is how interested she is in in new and future technologies like drones. It almost seems like she's determined not to do her portfolio in the traditional way, and she does get some flack for that approach from stakeholders. Yeah, I think it's an interesting job, the, the one that Bolt is doing now, because it's not her principally in charge of the Dieselgate file, for example, or the issues around that. She's worked, for example, on the road toll deal with the German government, which was very controversial about the introduction of a, of a road toll system in Germany that would charge foreigners a bit more. But that was something that was worked out at the highest levels of the commission, and, and Bolt herself only really announced that. Um, you do hear criticism of, of Bolts, of course. Some MEPs say she spends a lot of time travelling, for example. It, I mean, it would be surprising if the Transport Commissioner didn't Exactly, travel. yeah. It spends a lot of time in the air and on trains getting around. And green groups say she hasn't done enough on aviation shipping emissions, which are technically under her remit too. But... What she's really, really good at is getting out, giving speeches about the future. So we're talking, as you say, drones, we're talking connected cars, and we're talking, it's a little bit of a more geeky topic for for train and travel fans like us, but uh, intermodal ticketing. So it's how you oh, get... Oh, she's big on multimodal. That yeah, comes exactly. up with it. <laughs> so it's getting tickets so you can get on trains and buses and, and use the same interface all the time. It's a tough beat in a way because it's not one of the, the big priority areas for, for Juncker's commission. But... She's out and she's giving very good speeches and she's trying to push the agenda on these big digital issues. Well, Josh Pasana, thank you for joining us here on EU Confidential and let's hear from Commissioner Bultz right now. So, welcome to EU Confidential, Commissioner Bultz. Thank you. We're here in your office in the Commission headquarters in the Berlamont, the first time we've recorded a podcast here in the Grand Tower that makes all of the EU's decisions. And I'm a little bit nervous because you have a black belt in Taekwondo. And I want to check that you're not going to use that black belt on me in this interview. Well, the first rule when you are a holder of a black belt is that you try never use these skills in order to do any harm. 
and you're looking me directly and, in the eyes here. And I'm so obliged I'm trusting to you. Do that. Okay, good, good. Okay, we're off to a good start. Now, you're actually a really interesting commissioner. You not only studied in Silicon Valley, you also lived in Silicon Valley. Yes. Why did you choose Brussels over Silicon Valley in the end? <laughs> well, it was a little bit more than just a jump from Silicon Valley to Brussels. But, I mean, life offered me many opportunities so far. And I tend to use them when they appear. And that's how I got an opportunity to go and study in San Francisco. As a matter of fact, at Golden Gate University, which was established by the Silicon Valley companies in order to get the proper people. So after I finished studies, I was recruited and then I stayed and worked for a couple of years. And I have to say it was one of the most exciting periods, uh, really challenging. At that time, digital hype just started to happen. PC revolution really kicked in and network concepts started to come on board. The supercomputers started to appear. All big computer companies slowly started to disappear and the new names came on board. So I was able to experience this effects of a new paradigms in technology, what the consequences, how people react and everything else. But I have to say that um, I love the diversity of Europe. A lot of things happen in the country um, I come from originally, Slovenia. Because um, that was really a not Slovenia specifically, but I the left. region was really in a difficult period when well, the wars were starting. Yeah, and I left Yugoslavia, I came back to Slovenia. And back. you had your own startup when yes. you came back. It yes. was, it's called Vibacom? Vibacom. Vibacom, yes. sorry. I was never sorry. 14 years of entrepreneurial life was extremely educational and satisfactory. Mm -hmm. And I want to make a prediction, but one other thing I observed from that sort of trajectory that you had is that you seem also now to be very interested in technologies of the future. So if I think you're the transport commissioner, but you seem to be really interested in things like how do we have green aviation or how do we use drones into the future? Is that an accurate assessment? Are you really animated by all of these future-looking things? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's probably not hard to, to, <laughs> to notice that. Um, I'm always interested in what is behind the corner, what is, you know, a, a, the next step that we can really engage in. I'm driven by that. I've always been. I hope that this is something I bring also to the transport portfolio. And there is a good time to be a commissioner for transport. I mean, transport is going through some really dramatic change. You mm -hmm. mentioned decarbonization, that it's playing a really big role in this, but also digitalization. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're experiencing in the last two and a half, three years, enormous push for digitalization. We are recognizing now in transport ecosystem the value of digitalization and the benefits that it brings in on one hand in efficiency but mm -hmm. on the other hand in new business models and mm -hmm. engagement of startups SMEs and because one of the things I like about talking to you is I can genuinely be like an interested geek but not an expert so I have to I have to trust you on some of these answers um, but when you talk about efficiency are we talking about things like planes not flying around in circles <laughs> figuring out how to land but having new systems for that or yes. making sure that cars drive more efficiently on the road or is it 
other sorts of digitalization. No, you hit it at the right spot. Is in aviation, for example, digitalization brought enormous optimization of skies, the management, efficient management, and that increased safety tremendously. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, offered customers much more dynamic environment for making uh, different choices. I'm sure that Ryanair, EasyJet, Wizzair would never happen if we didn't have really digital means in order to manifest their performance model. So, Even uh, just in the booking. I mean, if you think back to yes, one of the original exactly. digital revolutions, it was travel agencies being wiped out and these companies being able yes. to go directly to customers. Exactly. And, and we see this now in road. We see with uh, the push uh, of digitalization in road sector, for the first time, I hope we will have a cross-border services. Uh, mm-hmm. We are now moving to connected, uh, cooperative, and on the long run, autonomous driving mm-hmm. on roads. And that would never happen without automation and digitalization. We see unmanned ships flowing mm-hmm. already in, in our motorways of the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's everywhere. I, I mean, it's so obvious in a way, but thinking about the self-driving cars, that is going to be very hard to make it work in Europe Mm. unless it can work everywhere Mm. in Europe because you can't really have these cars just shut down at the border or sort of be completely uncontrolled. Yeah, right. This is a big challenge. There's no doubt about it. That's why we're putting so much focus now on the cross-border services. But if it works in Europe, it will work everywhere in the world. I would suggest you're almost obsessed with drones. <laughs> Tell us, where does the passion come from? What have we got to do to make the drones work? Because there are going to be potentially millions of them, and I don't want them spying on me in my backyard. So how are we going to make the drone system work? I fully agree. I mean, there are lots of concerns related to drones, and privacy is certainly one of them, safety being the second one. And third is just how to control this almost toys. They can be remotely controlled. But this is yet another of those technologies that can really work in the benefit of people a lot. Like all automated part of transport, it gives mobility to a certain group of people that cannot move around by themselves anymore. And it gives opportunity to deliver especially like medicine, goods, to remote Mm -hmm. places that we cannot deliver today. We know that drones are now used very successfully in different rescue operations, surveillance operations, in delivery of medicine, Mm -hmm. uh, in delivery of first aid, and also in logistics, which will optimize the logistic chain. And is that actually an emissions solution? Because one of the perennial questions that just always comes up, critics of aviation emissions say there's just going to be billions more middle-class people who are going to want to fly in the future. We're not doing a lot to change their behavior. We're kind of relying Mm -hmm. on the technology advances Mm -hmm. at the moment. Could drone services replace the need for people to actually travel to certain locations? Is that one of the benefits? Well, in certain circumstances, this could be considered as a benefit too. But I see it more as just another way of also decarbonization of transport. But it's just another flexibility that hopefully will address the congestion in cities. But that's why it's so important that we really have it regulated well. And I'm quite happy that we uh, already in fall will have for the first time European framework of regulation for drones and uh, strategy or actually the framework and architecture for urban space, Mm -hmm. aviation space, which means that through that one we will define all the rules how the drones can be used in congested areas 
uh, in residential areas, in cities, mm-hmm. and I hope that this will take most of the fears that people have with drones away. Certainly, it's an area that is uh, great for SMEs, for startups, for young people to get involved, and we see it in agriculture. It's really bringing huge benefits. You know, it's the so this is the digitization in a way as well that yes, you were it talking is. about. Exactly. I mean, imagine that you can detect any kind of troubles on your fields soon enough and you don't need to lose so I have your... the solution we don't reduce the common agricultural policy payments we just give people vouchers for drones so instead of taking away their subsidy we replace the subsidy with drone subsidies well, uh, certainly, this could, certainly this could be discussed. Yes, uh, the drones will help us a lot to have more efficient agriculture. So let's see how we can get together now on this idea. Now, two of the other things I'm very passionate about. One is trains. I love traveling on trains. And then the other is a kind of frustration throughout my life of looking at governments not doing infrastructure as well as they could have. Or idiot governments thinking if they just delay the infrastructure decision that it will Mm. somehow get cheaper. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about all of the different cross-border things we can be doing with transport Mm -hmm. infrastructure. So if you have any favorite projects, let me know. But the reason it was on my mind is I was in Budapest over the Mm -hmm. weekend and it just occurred to me how crazy it is that there's no fast train between Vienna, Bratislava and Budapest. I mean, like, I could go on and get greedy and say Prague and then Berlin and have some Mm. huge line. Mm. But those three cities in particular, I thought, it's so obvious that they should be connected. Is that something that you get involved in in your portfolio? Well, certainly, this is uh, first, uh, it is part of my portfolio. And one thing is that it's a historical reason that each member state has its own railway company and it was very much state-owned and it's state-managed. But um, you look at the history, you see it, how this was slowly evolving, especially the car industry and the road mode being so aggressive mm-hmm. in offering the convenient point-to-point traveling solutions. Of course, railway was seriously challenged Mm -hmm. but because railway brings so many advantages European Commission decided to really focus on the investments in railways. So most of our investments in this financial period are for railways. So Mm -hmm. we see the real cross-border projects now being deployed missing links being deployed. And does it take those local governments or those national governments are are they the ones who have to come to you with the proposals? So if they were to Mm -hmm. be one between Vienna and Budapest. They have to come to you or you can make the suggestion and then try and get them around the table? How does it normally work? You see, work? this is a lot of different approaches. EU decided on the nine major corridors that connect mm-hmm. all member states together mm-hmm. and all these corridors have also railway plans and railway mm-hmm. connectivities in place. So this was already agreed in 2014. Now we are in the deployment phase. Mm-hmm. So member states now have to deploy the projects and of course we have also financial tool called CEF that they can apply for co-funding through. So yes, in this sense, member states are now obliged to find the ways to fund the corridors mm-hmm. that they signed and made a commitment to deliver by 2030. So this will be going on now and mm-hmm. I'm so far quite happy because all our calls are heavily oversubscribed. Mm-hmm. So there is more need. We're looking for new financial tools to support the projects and I'm very optimistic really about the infrastructure for transport in the future in Europe. Now one last train customer (laughs) service question is I heard several years ago that Deutsche Bahn was going to make efforts to run services through the, the channel tunnel. Is that a problem that you come across very often? The way that these operators have monopolies on certain lines, especially in fast train services and 
will we ever get to the stage where it's a bit more like aviation, where it's a really liberalized market and you can have three train companies competing on some of these routes? Well, theoretically now this is possible. Mm -hmm. The infrastructure is a different issue, but on a rolling stock, on a service level, through the fourth railway package, there is a market opening for mm -hmm. services. If I share with you a vision, yes, of course, on the long run, we want to have uh, one railway market, one single railway area where everything is open, liberalized. But of course, we need to walk the path. Yeah? Mm -hmm. These are steps that still need to be done in order to have a full deployment of such a vision. Mm -hmm. So I, let's talk about Brexit for a second. Mm -hmm. And so it's another question about not really knowing how lots of these EU processes mm -hmm. work. So we heard people like Michael O'Leary from Ryanair getting very excited about this idea that planes might not be able to land after Brexit unless a deal can be negotiated to make sure that the planes do have the right to come and go between the UK and the EU. Is that something that you and your department negotiate if we get to that point in the mm. Brexit negotiations? Mm. Or is it something that Michel Barnier's team does? Well, the European Commission decided on a single point of negotiation. So mm. uh, my colleague Barnier is the one who will negotiate the whole deal. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't work at the back and prepare all the mm. necessary information for him to be able to negotiate in a good spirit. Mm. Look, we are politicians, we have responsibility towards businesses, towards citizens, so at the end we have to find a way and a good deal that will, of course, make the life of our citizens and businesses um, a high-quality life. Mm -hmm. uh, with Britain, we will remain neighbours. But as we have said many times, this period will be tough. I mean, it's not an easy subject. It's uh, more we discuss it, deeper it gets. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be very uh, tense. And, and do you think O'Leary, he is exaggerating? I mean, he sounds very dramatic. Well, uh, Michael is extremely good businessman, so I, I really uh, respect uh, his drive and communication skills and everything. And you might uh, have to make him one of the negotiators. Yes, <laughs> maybe we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wrote about mass participation yes. in innovation. Is that like crowdsourcing or is it something else? Well, the experience has showed that if you engage maximum amount of people in the process of innovation, you get the best results out. You get the most sustainable, stable solutions that can really address in a systemic way the challenge in front. And that's why I'm very much in favor of that. We try to do that now in transport. We mm -hmm. bring as many stakeholders to the table as possible, as many times as possible in the process of shaping up a legislation or a proposal or mm -hmm. communication. I wonder whether that sort of thinking could be applied more to the automotive, to the car sector. And I know you're not in charge of things like Dieselgate mm. and so on, mm. but because transport is so horizontal, and I look at a sector like cars, and with these latest allegations about the cartels, mm. for example, like to me it just seems like every day you open up a newspaper and it's a new allegation or a new admission and that the whole thing is a mess. Do you get that sort of sense about that <laughs> sector or do you think that you could apply some of those techniques to get them to sort themselves out? I think that you actually put the question uh, really at the right moment. We realized as a commission that this needs to be addressed in a much more systemic level, much more on a systemic way. And as you noticed, the commission named Vice President Katainen as the coordinator now. This, mm -hmm. uh, we are realizing that this needs to be addressed in really holistically and a full extent and I hope that we can really deliver at the end. This has been going on for too long and we need to move on. Um, what is your favorite way to travel? 
my favorite way to travel is walking and cycling. Aha, okay. So no, no transport <laughs> interests are offended uh, as a result of that No, answer. but uh, ask me now, how, what is the most often way of traveling? Oh, so how, so you tell us, how do you most often uh, travel? It's aviation. And whenever I can is train. Mm-hmm. Because I really love uh, traveling on the long distance. I love moving about on trains. Yes, because I, just I feel read, like, exactly. I talk, I can yeah. listen to music, no obligations. Yeah. You can see things regardless of the weather. Yes, it's yes. Good. There's always food, you don't have to uh, wait. Unfortunately, today, aviation and car are the most often ones for business mm-hmm. reasons. But And if you had to choose, so I'm going to make you choose a transport profession here. Would you choose to be a plane pilot, a ship captain, or a driver of some other vehicle? Mm. I think whichever position you put me in, I will soon find a way to start coordinating all of them. True, but you have to choose one. <laughs> I have to choose one. <laughs> then I will say a ship captain because I know least about it. Excellent. And then about Slovenia. I think Slovenia is one of the hidden treasures of European Union. And what I love about my country is that it's very unhierarchical. It's very community type of uh, country and still values, sincerely, close family and friendships, uh, relationships mm-hmm. as they are, and uh, love. That's in the lo- slogan or the exactly, logo, isn't it? Because, With the love in Slovenia. Because Slovenia <laughs> in its name has the word love, love. but not only mm-hmm. that. The expression Slovenian word for human being is človek, and that word has love in it as well. Very nice, very nice. Um, The European Commission has a system where somebody always has to be in charge. Mm -hmm. And also, we're European, so everyone has the right to a holiday. So you all get to be in charge for a couple Mm -hmm. of days, at Mm -hmm. least each year. And I think that you did that last last year year for a while. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about how that works? Is it that you sit in your office waiting for a disaster to happen (laughs) or there are 10 things you have to do on your permanent stay? Like Jean-Claude Juncker leaves you a list of things to do when when he leaves. Well, I have to first say that I was very excited when that week started to approach. And it is a big responsibility after all. You Mm -hmm. are the person in charge here. And I was here really every day. I'm a regular full day. I read all everything that had to be signed. I Mm -hmm. signed what I had to sign. I was attending all the meetings. And then you realize you think your portfolio is big. But then you start dealing with this vast number of issues. And And that's even in August when uh, most people are on holiday. Yes. And I tell you, there were like stacks of documents to be read and signed. And you see, European Commission is quite a complex animal. So it is complex. It could be optimized, but it's well defined. So you know exactly what to do. And uh, as far as I was, as I said, excited. I was never afraid because Mm -hmm. the system works and I knew exactly what I need to do every day. It's almost a self-driving car. Not quite. (laughs) Almost, but not quite. (laughs) (laughs) And now the easiest one of all, where are you going to go on holiday this year? I'm, I'm going to Peru. So oh, that's what's keeping me excited. Oh, one of my favorite countries. Ah, where did I you go? I did twice a long, two, twice a month trekking in wow. Peru. Wow. Okay. I love it. So I'm, I'm doing twice a day trekking in All Peru. Right. And then I'll do some pisco sour oh, and some good. restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go my almost a routine summer holidays. 
through its first week sailing. I mm -hmm. love sailing. Okay. Uh, so it's going to be uh, Greece the first step, or Adriatic, the Adriatic yeah, yeah. Okay. down south. And then mountaineering. So mm -hmm. I love hiking. So okay. I will hike Slovenian mountains and then a few more days in Slovenian coast. So, okay. yes. Great. Well, Commissioner Bolt, thank you for joining us here on EU Confidential. And we hope you have a great summer. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. That was the always fascinating Commissioner Violetta Bultz from the European Commission. Now it's time to turn to our Brussels Brains Trust. And now it's time for our latest EU WTF moment. I want to welcome into the EU Confidential Studio, Lena Abarus. Good morning, Ryan and Alva. And Alva Finn. Hi, guys. So, first up this week, we have the rather extraordinary situation where the EU released a new diversity strategy, that's the European Commission, and on the same day, it announced that six men and zero women were being promoted to its top rank within the European Commission Civil Service. But they forgot to announce that bit. They focused mostly on getting the new diversity strategy out into the public domain. And uh, I wanted to check with the two of you. What do you think of that scenario? I don't believe that any promotion should be based on your gender. It should be based on your work, on your experience, on your achievements. And in the commission, if those six men, they started their career way before these ladies, because, you know, it's, it's a very administrative process to go from a 13 to a 14 to 15. And so they're the grading. Uh, yeah, the and you have to do a lot of work and a lot of service uh, in order to get this directorship position. The funny part is that I grew up, as you know, in the Middle East. Most of the time we are always bashed by how we have gender issues, that women are not put on leadership position. We don't promote women in the government and in leadership positions within, even in the private sector. So what's funny is that sometimes I'm pro that, okay, we shouldn't be promoted and pushed just because we are women. And then I see that the EU is using this against third countries like mine and other parts of the world. And even recently, uh, I don't know. So you think it's hypocritical for the EU to push against these third countries, but then not follow its own advice about promoting women? If it is an administrative thing that those men, they, they just have to get these promotions. Okay, well, one thing I forgot to mention is that there were a list of 29 eligible candidates for these promotions. 25 of the candidates were men and four of them were women. And so that's where they got the zero and the six figures from out of that longer list. Alva, you don't look very amused. No, I'm just, we're trying to go swim against hundreds of years of sexism, discrimination, oppression. I do think to kind of swim against that tide, you need to take positive steps for promoting women into leadership. I think that quotas work in the domain of kind of sexism. They don't really work for, for other things. For example, I work in disability rights and it just makes it seem like you're hiring or promoting people because of their disability. It's half the population, though. It's half and half. And it's very clear. I also see what you're saying, Lena, that these people probably entered the service before. But why wasn't one of those women at least promoted? Why, out of all of the people promoted, either 25, 4, I do think there needs to be a kind of element of positive 
discrimination in, in that respect because otherwise how are women going to get into leadership? Those men entered the service before. They got all the privileges that men do until now. You know, and diversity policies don't work unless you actually enact these kind of things. If the EU is going to go around preaching to people about yeah. gender equality, then it needs to walk the talk. When you have a panel of 25 versus four, I do appreciate that it's difficult because to get to that level, you know, you've been kind of lifted up by your male privilege the whole time. And then these four women could be substandard. I'm not saying at all that they are, but I mean, that's a possibility. And then are you just promoting people because they're, I also don't believe in that. I think that people need to earn their place. And I think that the former Human Resources Commissioner, Kristalina Gorgieva, had a very legitimate point where she said, well, I'm not just going to promote several women into top positions and not fix the supply chain effectively. You know, what is most important is that we find a way to get women into the key management role, which is called a head of unit position. It's a middle management role. And if you get enough women into that role, then you can have a sustainable flow through from there. But what often happens is that women either take career breaks because of pregnancies, for example, or what used to happen, and I'm talking 20, 30 years ago now, is that women worked for maybe eight or 10 years, but essentially stopped the career when they were married. So they never really got to that key middle management level. And so the commission has made a, a very genuine effort, I think, to try and fix it at that point in the system. But then you're still years away from getting people into that very top level, which is what this latest promotion round considered. Yeah, it's a, I think it's very complex when you're in these kind of like civil servant positions, because there's all these layers of bureaucracy that you have to go through. And so it's not like being in a business where you can just promote whoever is, is, yeah. is, 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 fire is achieving. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much for that feedback. And now it's time for an EU thumbs up. So Alva, you were keen on nominating Greece, which is back in the international bond market. Tell us why. Yeah, I think it's great news. I mean, I'm Irish and it was amazing when we started coming out of the recession and things picking up and Greece has had such a hard time. So I think it would be nice for us to celebrate something positive coming out of uh, the Greek crisis because, you know, I mean, you've been following it for years, Ryan. It, isn't it nice to see them turn a corner? And it feels like they've actually overcome some odds because I know Mario Draghi did not want this to happen and they essentially just said, well, thanks for your advice, Mario, but we're going to do it anyway. Well, that's wonderful news and thumbs up for certainly for Greece. Great that European countries are still believing in each other and something to celebrate given that Brexit is just around the corner. Ah, yes. For every thumbs up, there's always a... <laughs> A negative wave to follow. The underlying EU WTF of the century. Let's move on to our Dear Politico section. And what a surprise, it is an assistant at the European Parliament who's got a problem surprise, with one surprise. of their members. I almost can't stop laughing. Right, um, but it's a very serious problem. These are real problems from real listeners. I'm just laughing at the fact that it's always the Parliament that is the source of the issue. So... It's a very long email from the listener this week, so I'm going to summarise it rather than read it out specifically. And here's the summary. Dear Politico, the reason for my frustration relates to the work of my member going beyond the usual shenanigans and mood swings, things he says that he has learnt to live with by now. The situation is that the assistant feels jeopardised by the fact that the MEP is under investigation for misuse of funds. The assistant worries that it's not the last scandal that is going to come out about this MEP. And in this age of 
online searching and activity, the assistant is very worried that even if they quit now, their name is always going to be linked to this MEP if they are found guilty of, of misusing the funds. So there's a bit of a dilemma in the sense of the assistant might be stuck with this problem no matter what, but also doesn't want to leave the MEP kind of proven, you know, as in convicted before they've actually really been investigated by leaving in the middle of the investigation and making the MEP look guilty. So what should this assistant do? Yeah, I think that you're seeing this in a very pessimistic light in relation to what it will look like in the future. Of course, if this misuse of funds, if it actually is true and you have nothing to do with it, then I do think that some political advisors, it could be a benefit to have worked for someone during a scandal because... That's very optimistic. The the tobacco theory. But you (laughs) you have skills. You know, you have skills of responding on this. And I definitely think, though that there are times we need to pull the parachute. And you've basically insinuated that you think there are more potential scandals coming. Maybe wait this out and then, yeah, pull the cord and try and sell what you did while this scandal was going on. You know, if you're good at spinning, that could be a benefit to you. Lena, what's your spin? Well, it's so clear from the email. I think he or she doesn't have any option. Either they stay or they leave. There's, well, not, uh, <laughs> there's not so much to, to analyze there. If he or she decides to stay, I think maybe they could be a bit in the shadow, not to shoulder to shoulder to the MEP, not too much in the public places and the receptions and debates and stuff like that, and just downplay your appearance. And patience is a virtue. Wait and see. And again, as I always say, you're the source of your own experience. So no one is going to make the decision on your behalf. Nobody made the decision on your behalf when you decided to join this MEP. And you should have done maybe further research before joining the MEP. I've got some counterintuitive advice, which is that, yeah, for sure, you might be forever linked online to this MEP. But who knows who their MEP is? I mean, like, let's get real. Most people don't know who most members of the European Parliament are, and most scandals in the European Parliament are forgotten in two minutes flat. Because there's so, so many, you yeah. know, one after the other. It's absolutely... So I have a feeling that this feels very tough and very career-threatening right now because you're in the middle of it. And when you're a politically engaged person, everything feels a lot more intense than it does to outsiders who aren't so involved in the political process. And I think that most people don't spend their whole career working in the European Parliament. So I think that this is a tough moment now, and I agree with the advice our two panellists have given, but I think this storm is going to pass. I don't think that this is something that's going to kill a career unless you yourself were involved in some of the problems. And as far as we know, you weren't involved in any of the problems. So I think you're clear. Good luck, though. Good luck. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of EU Confidential. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, we'd love you to spread the podcast wherever you heard this, whether it's your social media account, emailing your friends and colleagues, or giving us a review. Tell us exactly what you think, and we'll keep making it better and better. Every podcast is a team effort, so I want to give a big shout out to the team that makes EU Confidential possible. Andrew Gray, Cynthia Croat, and Wei Dong Lin. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.